John McWhorter, my old friend. How you doing? Hey, Glenn. How are you doing? Uh, I'm getting by, John. I'm getting by, maybe just barely, but I'm getting by. Glenn Lowry here, The Glenn Show at uh, substack.com, glennlowry.substack, and at uh, the Blogging Heads site, bloggingheads.tv. I'm with my conversation partner, John McWhorter. We're the black guys at bloggingheads.tv. He teaches at Columbia University and uh, publishes uh, frequently, uh, writes for The Atlantic, uh, is uh, got books coming out left and right. Um, I am in semi-retirement here at Brown University, <laughs> <laughs> just trying to keep the whole thing going. I don't know, man. I'm, I'm feeling okay. How are you? It's been, I've had some stuff, but I'm here. That's how, that's how I am. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Had, had some, had some stuff, nothing medical, but you know, one, one goes on. So stuff that you don't want to share with our audience, but that is nevertheless a heavy weight on your spirit at this moment. So I think both of us are in that condition. Yeah. Yeah. My, my sister passed away at the age of 71, uh, just uh, a week ago. I'm getting myself ready to go out to California for her funeral and spend time with uh, her family, her children, her husband. Uh, so I've been, you know, processing that, grieving the loss of my sister and thinking about her, my own mortality, our life together as little kids growing up in Chicago, our mother who's been gone for 20 years, um, our father who died a few years ago. And uh, I'm the only one left of, of, that, uh, of that crew. So, yeah. I can imagine. I can very much imagine. That's coming for me soon. So, yeah. yeah. So anyway, what are we talking about here this week, John? We're the black guys at bloggingheads.tv. We've got to live up to our reputation. Editors, could you please, when you do this, just speed up this a little bit. Don't, don't have everybody listening to all these hesitations and things. Um, I um, think that we should talk about the fact that we deny that there's a such thing as systemic racism. You know, over the past year, the term systemic racism has become part of the national conversation in a way that it never was before. And the new thing is that you either understand or you don't understand that there is systemic racism. And if you deny it, you're bad. And so there's a there's a higher wisdom that apparently you and I don't get. And I don't think that's accurate, but maybe we want to plumb this idea that we as, quote unquote, contrarians, think there's no systemic racism because, you know, both of us have written about it quite a bit. Neither one of us ever say there's no such thing as systemic racism. But a lot of sane people seem to think that that's what we're saying. If somebody asks you and I remember actually once Abby Thernstrom asked me directly, and I remember thinking, what a what an interesting, challenging question. She said, John, do you think there's a such thing as systemic racism? And I answered, yes. What would you have answered? Well, what year did she ask you that? She asked me this in what would have been. It was 2007. Yeah. So my answer would be, yes, there is such a thing as systemic racism, or here I can give you an account of something that could plausibly be called systemic racism that I think is coherent and consistent with American history. But no, I don't think there's systemic racism in the sense, in the spirit with which people so quickly invoke systemic racism nowadays. So for example, just to make this latter point, my university uh, Brown here um, had a, a impaneled a ad hoc committee of faculty, uh, students and um, staff to inquire into the question of the anti-Black racism at Brown University, a version of systemic racism uh, focused on the institution where I work. The panel uh, uh, produced a report and the president has received the report and communicated to the community her intention 
this is President Christina Paxson of Brown University, to act in an affirmative way on the recommendations of the report. Now, I don't want to go into all the details about the report. That's not my point. My point is the idea that Brown University is an institution that is besotted with institutional racism seems absurd mm -hmm. to me. It seems absurd. Mm -hmm. Anti-Blackness at Brown makes no sense to me whatsoever. I don't exactly know what they're talking about. This is just me. I seem to be the only one of this disposition, or at least the only one who's willing to say so in public. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe in that kind of systemic racism. I don't believe that, for example, the mortality disparity associated with the COVID-19 pandemic that shows a higher mortality rate for people of color is an instance of anything that I'm prepared to call systemic racism. I don't believe that the disparity of mass incarceration in which the incarceration rates of African-Americans are higher is ipso facto just in virtue of the fact of the disparity and indictment of the society for being systemically racist. I don't believe that the achievement gap in uh, higher education or in K through 12 test score differences or the underrepresentation of African-Americans in certain venues can be coherently accounted for except as a tautology, mm -hmm. you know, as Kendi would put it, systemic rate, I mean, this is a paraphrase, not a quote, but it's racist because it's racist. I mean, mm -hmm. except in that sense, I don't believe it's very useful to think about it in terms of systemic racism. So I would say the way that people are talking about it here this last couple of years, no, I don't think, I think it's a bluff and a bludgeon is the way that I put it. A bluff in that people say systemic racism and they're daring you to give any alternative account of the phenomenon that is at question. In the incarceration case, they're daring you to say there are too many black criminals. That's why there are too many black prisoners. In the achievement gap case, they're daring you to either say something like Charles Murray might say, well, the tests are different because of, well, we think there's a heritability issue in their populations and whatnot. Or they're daring you to say there's a cultural phenomenon going on within these racially distinct populations that bears on the reason why there's so many Asians seeking PhDs in the STEM fields and so few Blacks. They're daring you to say that. So systemic racism becomes a kind of rhetorical weapon to try to get the moral high ground in a debate about uh, racial disparity. So I don't believe it in, in that sense. On the other hand, mm -hmm. I think if I were a historian trying to tell the story about race and racial disparities coming out of uh, the uh, period of slavery on through the last 175 years, it'd be hard to tell the story without an uh, invocation of the way in which the structure of the society, of the polity, of the economy, of the culture was suffused with racial stereotypes, racial stigma, racial prejudice, racial discrimination, that history has a long tail. You know, it echoes down, it cascades down through the generations. The way that space is organized in American cities, who lives where, of course, didn't happen yesterday or the day before. Uh, and even if I were to assert that there are cultural differences, those differences to the extent that they exist would have to be understood historically as having evolved out of a context which was suffused with racial unfairness and things of this kind. And so trying to tell the story, to narrate the story of American social structure uh, would have me in the business of pointing to race, racism, racial exclusion, racial, racist ideologies, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure that the you know, essays that make up the 1619 Project compendium, you know, all those essays about different aspects mm -hmm. of American society have a point when they say traffic patterns have something to do with racism because people were running away from the cities and the interstate highway system got built so as to make it easy for whites to be in the suburbs, not have mm -hmm. to rub shoulders with. I'm sure that the war on drugs played out in part the way it did under the influence of uh, racist uh, sentiments and 
you know, we heard all we've heard about redlining and whatnot, and et cetera, et cetera. So what did I say? I said, I don't want to use systemic racism as a rhetorical weapon in the contemporary disputation about racial disparities, because I think it's really a, it's, it's a kind of power move to try to get the upper hand uh, in a conversation and to avoid dealing with with, uh, you know, some unpleasant aspects of the problem. Uh, on the other hand, if I pick up a book like uh, Khalil Muhammad's The Condemnation of Blackness, which is a history of how American elites, political and intellectual elites, dealt with crime in the last part of the 19th and the first part of the 20th century in American cities, which were receiving large numbers of migrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, but also were receiving quote unquote migrants from the South of the United States, moving off of the black migrants, moving off of the, the, the land, off of agriculture and into the cities first in the South and then in the Midwest and the East Coast. And you know, he just wants to point out that uh, racial uh, presumptions about the capacity of African-Americans to effectively integrate ourselves into the burgeoning industrially uh, industrializing American economic system, having come out of less than uh, two generations from slavery, caused these elites to see in a very different light the African-American criminals and lawbreakers and whatnot than they saw uh, the European immigrants. The European immigrants were the subjects of, you know, settlement house outreach. They 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 were they were criminal because they were poor. The blacks were criminal because they were intrinsically criminal. This kind of idea. This is what Muhammad develops in this book. Very nice book, Harvard University Press, twenty twelve, something like that. He's got a point. You know, he he he's he, you know. And you know, we could produce other examples of this kind. So I don't know. Did, did I try to take both sides of that question? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's when you unpack it all, a lot of it is that um, all of those things about the operations of racism in the past and not always the deep past are true. And you can document them. And if you look, you can find more and more evidence of, of those things. And they do need to be known. But beyond a certain point, the question is why? And so there were all of these things that happened before that lead to the way things are now, and that must be known. And what a lot of people are thinking is, and we talked about this before, it's the business of it's not our fault. It's not our fault. It's not because we're inferior. It's because the cards were stacked against us in the past. And I think for a lot of people, the reason that that has to be understood is because they feel that if white people think that it was our fault, they're less likely to institute policies to change these things. And I guess an eternal disagreement that I'm going to have is beyond a certain point, I don't care whether white people know that it wasn't our fault. I'm not sure how exquisitely educated a society we're expecting. And I think that a lot of people's desperation to have white people know it's not our fault is based on a kind of spiritual racial insecurity. And I'm sorry for that. I'm glad that for some reason I seem to have been spared it, but it means that I can see from the outside that this business of saying it's not our fault, it goes from history lesson to obsession, but it's a matter of degree because maybe white people understanding this and reading certain books will put a wind under the sails of progressive legislation. But what really worries me is just the awkwardness of the term. And as a linguist, I'm supposed to say that that's just how language goes and that it's always inexact. But wow, systemic racism is a tough one because I would prefer if I could wave a magic wand, it would be something like racial inequities. And that's not perfect. But the idea would be to say, yes, there are discrepancies between white people and black people in terms of access to certain things, in terms of ability to compete in certain ways. Those things are there. And Usually the reasons for that are traceable in kind of Rube Goldberg mousetrap fashion to some kind of racism in the past. But when you call it systemic racism, it leads to a mental habit of thinking that what needs to be combated is racism of some kind. And I think anybody who thinks about it knows that it's not necessarily about 
making people have less racist sentiments. You know, that's the Robin D'Angelo idea. I think people are thinking, though, that still the reasons that these things happened is because people don't think enough of black people. And that needs to be changed in terms of one psychology and two policy in some way. And the problem is that very often with social history, the way out is not the reverse of the way in. And so, for example, you know, standardized tests, black kids tend not to be as good at them. Now, the reasons for that can be traced to racism. I think also, as you say, it's about cultural aspects of things, which are positive in some ways about black people, about humanity, but that make you not especially good at doing things like taking standardized tests. And for a lot of people, you look at that result and you say, well, it's systemic racism because the kids don't do as well on the test. The testing is a racist practice because of the discrepancy. And so we have to get rid of something that is underestimating or unduly belaboring black people. So that leads to the solution of yank the test. And so right now you probably know what's going on in Boston where with the top schools that you have to take a test to get into, now only 20% of the admits are gonna be brought in on the basis of test scores. 80%, it's now just about zip codes and it's transparently a way of lessening the number of Asians and increasing the number of black kids who get into the school. The idea being get rid of the test because it's racist. But the argument that racism is the reason that kids here in the present tense don't do well on the test doesn't hold up to scrutiny, including the idea that other kids sail on these tests because of test prep and that test prep is not available to black kids. That's not true in any city that I'm aware of. Yet there's no room in the conversation for saying, well, I mean, there is room because nobody's keeping us from saying what we're saying, but it's considered unusual to say the reason that these kids aren't doing well on the test is not something that can be gracefully called racism. Maybe it's traceable to something racist in the past, but we live in the present. So that's what worries me about the term, because it always implies that that animus you have against bigotry is the same feeling you should have when black people aren't as good at something as white people for some reason. You're supposed to have your lower lip poked out and you're supposed to have that same feeling that it's racism. But usually that's a simplistic solution that doesn't end up helping anybody. It's a very elementary way of looking at how human beings operate in time and space. So the term makes me uncomfortable. If somebody says, is there systemic racism? And they mean, are, are there these inequities? Yes. Are these inequities due to racism in the past? Yes. By the past, do I mean only in black and white in 1914? No. I know about redlining and it can, goes even beyond that. But is the solution to problems due to this thing we're calling systemic racism to undo the racism. And it seems to me that that leads us down some paths that no civil rights leader, even 50 years ago, would have seen any sense in. It is my least favorite word in the English language at this point. Systemic expression, racism. systemic racism. It's so distracting, I think. I, I, I think you made some good points just now. Um, I want to amplify that a little bit. I mean, one of the things that that way of talking does is it invites a view of the world where there's racism, but you're not particularly concerned about racist. It's, it's, in, the, it's in the water, it's in the atmosphere, it's in the structure of things. And that move is, is very interesting and powerful because whereas if I was accusing somebody of being a racist, and this is a point that the lawyer Richard Epstein made when I interviewed him here a couple of weeks ago, the people accused of being racist would get their day in court, metaphorically speaking. They, they say, no, I'm not. So Brown University, it's a racist institution. It has anti-Black problems that have to be solved by an edict and a program and a presidential intervention and a faculty committee. But no particular faculty member is in the dock being accused of being a racist. No, nobody's uh, teaching habits or social media or scholarship that is supposed to be racist. So th that person, if that person were to be identified, John Doe, the racist, 
would have uh, the opportunity to stand up and say, no, I'm not proof that I'm a racist. And of course, that would be a difficult thing to do since most of the John Doe's around here at Brown University are not actually racist. So you, it, it, this is curious because if I understand D'Angelo and I confess that I have not been able to bring myself to read her book, White Fragility. I wouldn't hurry. Uh, but it, it sounds like white person cure thyself. It sounds like an invitation to white people to look at their inner racist. And yet systemic racism moves the spotlight away from the individual person onto the system. I don't know how much introspection of individual white people is ever going to get rid of the war on drugs or cause there to be a different poverty and housing policy or et cetera, et cetera. So it seems like there's a disconnect there. Systemic racism wants us to look not at individual behavior, but at the structure, but the white fragility or the struggle sessions that they have when, you know, all the people get in the room and they start talking about race is meant to change the heart and the soul of the white person. Those are not really the same thing at all. You know, I I just want to say one other thing, John, excuse me. This Boston uh, Latin exam school thing is deeply disturbing to me. Uh, because it's racist. It's anti-Asian. Yeah. And the thing that makes me so upset is that it's like these people, I'm talking about the Asian kids who do well on the exam and are overrepresented in the schools. And often working class or poor. Mm -hmm. Exactly. They are an embodiment of the American dream. It's not as if they're privileged people. Mm -mm. So it's like you're devaluing their success. It's like you're saying that their success is coming at the expense of somebody. That's a horrible idea. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to get that on the table. And it is. And the reason it's acceptable to so many people is because anti-racism has become a religion. It is beyond logic on this point. The idea that you have this Asian kid and his parents have thick accents and they're running a store and they have made it so that he can test into this school. And we're supposed to say that kid doesn't matter as much as the black kids in a few neighborhoods over. And really, we just don't care. And well, Asian is kind of white anyway, isn't it? All of that is utter nonsense. Anybody knows it on some level, but the religion says that it's all about elevating black people and Latino people too. And therefore you just knuckle under and you look over people's shoulder and talk about how complicated all this is. That's what I mean by the religion, that it makes people do things that make no fucking sense. In other words, and I've learned I should nuance this. It's a bad religion. And so a religion to an extent. Thank you, John. I'm I'm, I'm glad you're listening, bro. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to, I capitulate to that because I get what people mean. I really, I really do get it. I'm not going to give up on the religion, but the point is it's a bad religion in that there's a part of religion where you have to not think logically. And in some cases, you don't think logically. And let's say that you you give love, et cetera. I get that. You know, love your enemies, Dorothy Day, et cetera. But in this case, it means screw the Asian kids. We must elevate the black kids. No, that's 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 a shitty religious kind of thinking. But, yeah, the the whole Business with um, systemic racism is also worrying in that it encourages a kind of laziness, because if you can't identify what professor is being a racist, you can just say, well, it's in the system. And there's a whole series of gestures that have become established. It's almost like sign language. You talk about you put your hands up. It's in the air or this one is something. It's systemic. And people who are just listening, I'm taking my hands and I'm rolling them around each other. And all a person has to do is make this gesture. And it implies that it's true because you're putting your fingers circling around. But that doesn't mean anything is true. It just means that you've learned how to do that thing with your hands. But people say, oh, it's systemic. It's, it's, it's everywhere. And to tell you the truth, Glenn, I think you and I can both say this as people who have worked on both of us have worked on more than one university campus. And I was a fact brat, Temple University. The idea that modern colleges and universities are racist spaces is false in terms of any conception of what racism is that would have made sense to any member of Homo sapiens until about 10 minutes ago. It's false. I've been listening to kids saying this since I was teaching at Berkeley. What is it that's racist about the campus, Malcolm? You know, what, what is it that what's the 
looks, Malcolm would say, I'm making up Malcolm. The looks people give me, nobody's giving Malcolm any dirty looks. This is not Ole Miss 50 years ago. Malcolm had been taught a lie. And I understand. Can I speak up for Malcolm for a minute? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't want to interrupt you, John, uh, but I can hear him saying the curriculum is racist. I don't Mm -hmm. see any, I don't see any any black people on the reading list. Mm -hmm. I don't see myself in the, it's all dead white men uh, saying that the uh, faculty uh, at your school, UC Berkeley is only 3% black. That's racism, the, the uh, structure of how faculty reproduces itself and so forth and so on. And in saying that uh, there's not enough affirmative action. It, in fact, people oppose affirmative action. In fact, the state of California has banned affirmative action and reiterated the ban. Well, if that's mm-hmm. not racist, I don't know what is. McWhorter. Well, Malcolm, how about this? <laughs> have you ever <laughs> have you ever heard a Chinese American student or a Korean American student say any of this? How represented are they in the faculty? How come they don't say it? What's the difference? Slavery? What? Jim Crow? Redlining? What's the difference, Malcolm? And Malcolm doesn't have an answer to that. And also, Malcolm. Neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> and no, also- I mean, because the fact is, if they, the Chinese student, mm-hmm whether they were born in China or born in the United States, go to the university and pull down the syllabus and look at whose books are being cited. They're not going to find too many Chinese authors on that list. Why do they not run screaming from the room that they don't see themselves on the reading list? Why do they instead assiduously apply themselves to mastering the canon of the disciplines that they're in? And for by by uh, extension, how come there's so many of them in the symphonic orchestras playing the fiddle? And, and blowing those Western uh, tubas and whatnot. What, what's, what's up with that? What's up with that? <laughs> and, then, and then another thing, Malcolm, and this was the sort of conversation you'd have in the late 90s when there had been the ban on racial preferences. Malcolm, what does your mother do? She's a middle manager at blah, 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 blah. Malcolm, what does your father do? He owns a string of blah, 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 blah. blah. So, Malcolm, you have not known any any kind of, you know, poverty or anything like that, right? Malcolm, you're a middle class, even frankly, upper middle class. We're not going to call you affluent, but upper middle class. So Malcolm, do you know that a lot of the reason you were admitted to this school, and I never had this conversation with anybody, but imagine what it would be like. You were admitted partly because you're diverse, because you're not like white people. I'm not sure how you're not like white people, given how you grew up, but you're diverse and you're going to teach Timmy and Caitlin lessons about blackness. You're diverse. You're different. And, you know, all those views that you're expected to express in class about the black condition, you're supposed to talk about slavery You know how much fun it is when you're the only black kid in class and somebody says the word slavery and everybody looks at you. you. Do you enjoy that, Malcolm? Of course you don't. Well, that's racial preferences. You know, it's not only black kids from Oakland who had it hard. And in fact, Malcolm, how many of your friends grew up having it hard, your black friends here on campus? Malcolm had very few because John McWhorter checked the socioeconomic profile of black kids at UC Berkeley at that time, when I could walk right into the office and ask for the data and they would give it to me because nobody knew who I was and they figured any black scholar would wanna make the usual victimologist message. So they just handed it to me physically, they handed it to me right there. Very, very few poor black students at UC Berkeley. They were middle-class kids. The poor black kids go to other schools. So that, and you know, frankly, it's the same way today. These are the least racist spaces on the planet. And yet you and I both know, I mean, actually at Columbia, this is much less strident than at Brown, although I hear, I mean, we've been away from campus. I hear that at Columbia, a certain kind of language is being spoken more, but more at Brown for for various reasons. The idea that it's a racist space, but if you ever asked anybody to back that up, they simply couldn't in any way that is truly convincing. And yet that same kind of dialogue continues year after year after year. It's medieval. It is truly medieval, but I know that we can't stop it anytime soon. So fake, so utterly fake. Well, the practical consequence on the campuses of the um, racism debate is about personnel and admissions policies. It's about who gets the jobs and who gets admitted into the programs of study. And it's about affirmative action in one sense or another, I think. I mean, here at Brown, for example, I was looking at the numbers that were in that um, report that I mentioned of the committee impaneled to examine institutional racism, anti-Black at Brown. 
and the president's response. And the president was able to say that in the last five years, the proportion of uh, master's degree students and PhD degree students at Brown who are black, not of color, black, has increased by 50%. It was like 7% before, and it's now like 11% uh, after a four-year period. Look how well we're doing. That's the measure. The measure of the extent to which the institution has been responsive to concerns about racism is an increase in the proportion of the student body in selective programs uh, who, are, uh, who are Black. Uh, that presumes, in order to make sense of that, and then not call it simply racial discrimination in favor of Black people now, you have to presume that those numbers ex ante before the change were as low as they were because of anti-Black discrimination, because qualified Black applicants were being turned away. Well, we know that that's not true. I mean, at least in my extensive experience, 45 years as a college professor. Oh, hell, yeah. You know, you see a Black kid, an identifiably Black kid who's got qualifications anywhere near the line of what you're doing when you're admitting into a PhD program and you're jumping for joy. Oh, you roll out the red carpet. Yeah. And you know you're going to be competing with 10 other institutions for the attention of this person. Mm -hmm. So so again, there's a logical disconnect here. Uh, they want to not say that they're engaging in pro-Black, probably immoral, if not illegal, discrimination in order to counteract whatever the phenomenon is that's causing African-Americans to be relatively underrepresented amongst outstanding applicants. They're, they're not doing that, but they don't, do they wanna acknowledge or claim that in the situation before they introduced a progressive policy, there was a epidemic of anti-Black discrimination against applicants. They can't do that because it's demonstrably false. Medieval. <laughs> I remember in the early 90s when I went out on the market of very intelligent black faculty member, very important to me, said, you know, I was saying, boy, this is kind of scary. And he said, John, all you're going to have to do is put your finger up into the air and you're going to have people just grabbing at you. You don't have to worry about a thing because it's, you know, I'm black. And he did not mean that I had done anything that proved any great genius. And we have talked before about how I because I marched to the beat of my own drummer and because I speak well, was extremely undercooked when I got my PhD. I barely deserved the degree. I, I made up for it later, but I was really, I did not really qualify as a linguist in 1993. And there are people who were there who would attest to it if you gave them a glass of wine. So it wasn't, you're so incredible. It was that you are competent and well-spoken and therefore you will be snapped up. And this is somebody who just, you know, talked about that as accepted. And yet we live in a context where that person could be surrounded by people saying that there were me's who were finding themselves teaching in community colleges because of racism, because I was good, but I'm black and they can't quite tell. No, you and I both know that that's since the 70s, it's been that you get more attention if you're black and you can be less qualified and wind up teaching at an Ivy League school. Like in my case, Cornell, I had no business there and I'm not, it's not false modesty. I deserve what I have now because I worked on myself. But back then I didn't deserve to be at Cornell. It was a joke. And yet we tell this story that there was anti-blackness at Brown until about 10 minutes ago. It has no relationship whatsoever to reality. And yet we watch all of these brilliant, kind people standing around pretending to believe it. I sometimes shudder to think about the falseness of a lot of the white people we know. These people walking around pretending to believe in phlogiston. It's truly, truly stunning to me, the falsity that we walk around dealing with. And I know they can't do any better. I would be pretending if I were white. I get it. But wow, it's repulsive, isn't it? Oh, well, <laughs> I'm going to go back to what did we call him? Uh, the kid that uh, you were rebutting. This is little Malcolm. Malcolm. <laughs> so here, Malcolm at Brown is uh, fixated on the fact that 
the Brown family, who were uh, merchant bankers and uh, textile uh, industrialists and, and traders, also had their finger in the slave trade. And uh, some of the fortune that came to endow this university was built off of the you know, blood, sweat, and tears and uh, extorted labor of, uh, of African people. And the institution needs to own up to that. Now, the institution has, in some sense, owned up to that by um, when Ruth Simmons, the former president, was I remember here, that. start launching a whole sort of in the self, arts, self-examination right? process. Of, there was a slavery and justice initiative undertaken at Brown acknowledging our history uh, as a, a philanthropy that emerged out of a fortune that was built in part on, uh, on the commerce and slaves. And uh, a, a center was created here, a, a research and scholarly uh, center as a focus of study of slavery and justice issues. The university's obligation because of that history extends to outreach to the local communities of color who were here in Providence and engagement with the school system and effort to employ more local people of color on the staff of the university and even to seeking to admit some uh, local students who matriculate at public schools here in Providence into Brown University who might not otherwise uh, have a fast track. It's, a, it's uh, reflected in statuary you know, monuments, you know, the, around the campus, acknowledging the university's history and slavery. The narrative of the university changed in part by a recognition of its history. This is regarded as addressing uh, a question of anti-Black racism at Brown. So that's one thing. Um, resources going into the Harambe house, they call it Harambe house. That's the Black Student Center it used to be called the Third World Center. Till people figured out how very problematic that was, uh, and so they moved away from it because we don't use the the development Third World. And besides, a lot of okay. the population of the Third World are not black, right? Right. Uh, you know, so uh, it's the Harambe Center now, and resources have gone in. Um, uh, incremental resources have gone into addressing that. Uh, the African Africana Studies program is being beefed up and its physical facilities are being invested in and stuff like that. So efforts, systematic efforts to make students more comfortable to give faculty more faculty of color or faculty working on questions of interest to people of color, more resources and the institution self understanding. Yeah. And the way it's narrating and presenting itself more sensitive to the way sure. that black people would see it. Right. Uh, now, that's a good thing, isn't yes. it? Yes. Now, here's all right. Here's something, Malcolm. I was there 15 years ago. Brown had me up there to speak, I think twice. I, I gave one talk about reparations. And I, I remember there was this probably 40 year old white guy. He's got one of these radio voices. And so he's probably <laughs> still there and he may hear this, but I'm sorry. I really was disturbed by the way he <laughs> treated me. And after I finished talking, he's got his hand right up and he wants to, he wants to lecture me about the presence of racism and how it's systemic. Followed me physically, <laughs> practically to my hotel room, got oh, wow. my number, wanted to call and talk to me about it. In other words, he's the, the, the woke we weren't calling them that at the time, but he's the woke white guy who thinks it's his duty. He had something to do with radio. He did local station or something inform the world that, you know, racism is systemic and that it needs to be addressed. And here's the thing. I remember there were black people at Brown then, including undergraduates who were very, very angry about how racist the campus was. And I frankly assert that it was not anything, any rational, per not, no, don't say rational. It was not anything any uncoopted person would have called racist in, 19, in, in 2006 either. But Malcolm is mad then. Why is it that Malcolm today, today's Malcolm, is just as mad as Malcolm was in 2006? All the things you've talked about are great. I would not stand in the way of any of those things. There was all this, you know, inward looking, take down the statues, call it the Harambe house, talk about reparations, talk about whatever the Browns did. Okay. All that was done. And now here we are in 2021 and Malcolm is still there, angry, 
as hell. Why? What is it that hasn't been done at this point, Malcolm? Well, the disparities persist, notwithstanding all that you call attention to, Professor McWhorter. The disparities, look at who's in prison, look at the poverty rates, look at who's dying from the pandemic, look at employment, look at income, look at wealth, the wealth gap, Professor McWhorter, the wealth gap, the wealth gap, because the wealth gap. And, um, you know, the disparities persist. Now, I've got two choices here. Either I blame the system or I say that Black people are failing. Uh, It's completely unacceptable morally and, more importantly, psychologically, to say that Black people are failing. And by the way, if you call attention to those Asian immigrants, now you're in the model minority business. Oh, I see you're going to be a model minority advocate, are you? And if you say uh, single parent families and out of wedlock births and uh, acting white culture and whatnot. Oh, so you're going to make a cultural argument now. So it's, you know, it, it, it's you're blaming the victim. So I really don't have a choice. It's got to be systemic racism, either that or it's on us. And I can't handle that being on us. Malcolm, why are you that angry? And this is something I actually asked Malcolm in 2006, an actual Malcolm, except it was it was a woman, actually. Why are you that angry? I mean, one would think that you were on a campus in the South in 1960. Do you really think that the Brown administration deserves contempt this acrid? Is it really a racist space in the sense that your parents or your grandparents would have recognized racism to be? What makes you this angry? And Malcolm today in particular, think about what Brown is. Okay, yes, there are disparities and you can see some of them reflected in some things that happen at Brown. Why are you spitting mad? Aren't there things happening in your real life that genuinely make you angry? Why are you this angry at this elite university that has done everything it possibly could? Why are you that angry, Malcolm? Can you do that? What, why is he that angry? Are you in his head to that extent? I don't know if I can do it or not. <laughs> uh, I can give a, a cynical Uh, account, which is I find that I have a lot of power when I ball my fist up, scrunch my face up and start screaming. I find that I get what I want. I find that people respond to me the way that I want them to respond. Call it a shtick. Call it a performance or an act. All I'm telling you is it works. So I'm making my way through the world. And oh, by the way, the cops. I too could get pulled out of my car at any moment and bludgeoned to death by one of these racist police officers. I too could be the subject of some weird medical experiment that the government wants to perpetrate on black people or whatever it might be. Um, So uh, what do they call a black man with a PhD? Nigger, that's what they call him. So I'm not exempt and neither is Brown got clean hands Uh, For this, you know, white privilege is going to follow these people everywhere that they go. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not doing this very well because my heart's not really in it. (laughs) But I do know that I'm powerful when I'm mad. And I do know that if I threaten to storm the barricades here, uh, they'll lay down and, and they'll pretty much give me what I want. And so I would only finesse that by saying I can lay down and I can storm the barricades and then I will have done that. And it feels good. I don't know if it's even about results at this point, especially since I think a lot of these people barely know what they really want. And if they got it, they wouldn't be satisfied. Hire more of this, have a Harambe that. They're never satisfied. And I think it's because this is about gesture rather than activism. But yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. It's really, it's hard. You have to have a dialogue about something that isn't real all the time. I remember, um, and you try because- Everybody is trying their best. Everybody is one person within a system and all of us get polluted by self-serving ideologies. I don't think of myself as immune, but I remember black kids at Berkeley in particular would, you know, they would signal to me that I certainly understood that they were weary of dealing with the racism they were going through on campus all the time. I remember one, one girl who was just saying, I'm tired, I'm tired. And frankly, she was using it as an excuse for just underperformance for other reasons. But I was supposed to understand that she's just walking around 
dealing with the racism all over this campus. And it's interesting, I once happened to be thumbing through something and I found, she was a senior, I found that when she was a freshman, she had participated in some sort of group, some sort of forum that was supposed to foster interracial understanding on campus. And there was a photo of black her and some other black kids and then some white kids clearly assembled on some bleachers looking like they're having a conversation. But I remember thinking, so Berkeley is trying, you know, three years ago, I don't know if this group still exists, but look at the effect that it had. These students are having this communication and I imagine everybody would talk about, oh, that was a great discussion. But here three years later, she's pretending that the reason that she can't she can't do her best is because of subtle aspects of racism that are bedeviling her at Berkeley at this point, and that she just can't do her job. And I'm not going to call her on it individually. She can't help it. I, I can imagine being her. But no, I learned very early in the 90s that you have to learn this other language that you have to pretend. And it bothered me. And after a while, I wrote Losing the Race. But yeah, it was okay. Hard. So here, here's a thought. I'm, I'm still searching around for your answer, for an answer to your question, you know, of where, where this is coming from. And um, Trump, the Trump phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, why now? Okay. Why this last, since Trayvon Martin, when was that? 2012? 14, that? I think. No, 13. And yeah. then Michael Brown. And it's 14, I think. Eric yeah. Garner and Tamir Rice. and. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you know, we, we, we entered this period. You remember that summer? I, I think it was the fall of 2015, 2016, that academic year I was on leave. This when that Ms. You thing happened in the University of Missouri, that big brouhaha. Uh, this was- Yes, about, no, right. You know, yeah, the that, president that, had to resign, yeah. you know. Because of something were, they had said. Yeah, And And then right. there was a lot of solidarity with that. I, you know, I, my provost had his office uh, sat in by a group of students who were demanding. Here at Brown, I was on leave, but it was all, all this consternation was going on. Um, this was around the time of the campaign of 2015-16 that ended up with Donald Trump emerging as president. Um, is, it, is it a recognition of the rise of anti-Black sentiment in some quarters of the white you know, working middle class, you know, the white supremacists and all this sort of stuff, the Southern Poverty, Southern Poverty Law Center worries about extremist groups and, and all of that. Um, is it, so might this be to some degree a defensive reaction against an upsurge in anti-Black sentiment that can be identified in some quarters? And might these things not feed on each other? That is, some of the white resistance to the aggressive assertions of uh, people of color for this or that prerogative. If you were a Trump supporter on any of these campuses, I mean, didn't wasn't there an incident at, was it Emory? I think it was Emory. Somebody where, writes something on the ground. Yeah, right? and, and the, yeah. Students, the students of color were just so beside themselves because they felt af- assaulted by the expression right. of this polit- political sentiment. Right. These things can feed back and forth on each other. Uh, I think of the Charlottesville fiasco uh, with the uh, right wing groups and then the violence and the reaction of the president and the reaction to the reaction of the president and so forth and so on. Um, I think of Colin Kaepernick and the the whole consternation about about that. And again, the president, uh, Trump, former president, feeding into that. Um, I mean, I I was confronted with someone just recently who said American democracy uh, is in its final days because, and I said, well, come on, that doesn't make any sense. What do you mean? And he said, because there are so many people who want Trump to be back in politics again. And it's a fundamentally racist set of uh, dynamics that are at work here. Um, I'm rambling a bit, John, but I'm thinking maybe there's a defensive dimension to the upsurge of anti-racist wokeness, a a sense that something's going on in the country that in the long term really does threaten the position of African-Americans, notwithstanding all the progress of Obama's election, uh, et cetera, 
the sentiment in many newsrooms, college campuses, boardrooms, and so forth on behalf of equity and so forth. Notwithstanding that, we can read the tea leaves. We know that there is a lot of underground anti-Black sentiment out there. There's a lot of resentment of affirmative action. There's a lot of resentment of crime. Um, when, when people do rise up, radical Black spokesmen and women to uh, resist uh, this uh, tendency, they, they are met uh, with, uh, with implacable opposition in many venues. So I think you have to choose kind of sides. In, in closing, yeah. I think that um, everything that you say is, is true. There's a part of me because linguistics is uh, kind of a problem set abstract way of looking at things. You, you solve problems. My vision of this in some ways is more faceless than yours and maybe a little bit less feeling, but it all begins with the fact that if it weren't for Twitter and Facebook, nobody would have heard about Trayvon Martin beyond Florida. That would have been a story that ran for a week or two. And I think that in many ways, it's good that America hears more about things like that because there is a cop problem. And we've talked about whether or not it's racial, but there's a cop problem. But with Trayvon Martin, if that hadn't been amplifiable by the social media that had settled in by the early teens, that would have been a local story. Nobody would have known. And it went from there to all sorts of things escalating that helped create the ta Coates phenomenon. And then his ideas becoming very much part of the modern conversation. It got more attention to cases like Eric Garner, et cetera. So to me, it all starts with, frankly, Twitter. And then it's magnified by the fact that starting last summer, everything was happening on Zoom and there was a scrim curtain between people. And I think it brought out the prosecutorial and the pitchfork in an awful lot of people who otherwise would have been more moderate in their views. I, I swear that I'm overstating it, but I think that the chat function in Zoom has gotten a lot of people fired and created a whole different substrate to the way we talk about things because you can whip up these conversations on the side in Zoom in a way that you can't if a bunch of people are sitting in a room. One or two people can text each other, but the chat function creates this whole sub-conversation that can just escalate and escalate. And as I've said here before, I think we tend to forget that everything last year happened on Zoom. It wasn't people sitting in rooms and raising their hand. And so I think it's though it's those things. And so we're talking partly about technology. First, it's Twitter, Twitter. Then it's a whole year and a half when everything happens through Zoom. And I'm very interested to see what it's going to be like when things go back to normal in 2022. But normal will always be Twitter. We're, we're stuck with that. But I'd like to see what happens when we get off the Zoom. Well, we will see. How about if you and I don't talk about systemic racism for a while? How about if we <laughs> how about if we put it to rest? We need to find something else to talk. And how about if we find something that we disagree about, John? Yeah, let's fight about something next time. Yeah, we're going to have to think work of something. on that. Uh, I invite listeners, uh, if they care to comment on this post, to make some suggestions about what you'd like to hear John and I talk about that is not about systemic racism and that where you think John and I might actually have an interesting and productive uh, uh, exchange of views, so not, not be an echo chamber or circle jerk is the unkind way of putting it. We're not mm -hmm. that. We're not that. <laughs> <laughs> now, this past year and change has brought out a lot of agreement in us. But, yeah, it'd be fun to go back to the, the, the disagreement as well. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for uh, I wasn't in the best of moods today, John. I don't know why. Maybe my sister's demise is weighing on me in ways that I'm not fully conscious of. But I'm glad you put up with my my somewhat uh, uh, subdued uh, appearance here at the Glenn Show. Appreciate it. It was fine. I'm feeling the same way and I'm feeling a little bit lighter on my feet now. And so, yeah. All right, my friend, have a good day. And I'm, we're going to call it quits. Have a good one, Glenn.